Happy Wednesday and Happy New Year and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one of the, probably the one of the greatest space history movies ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Chris Henry of the EAA Aviation Museum. And we are back in the thick of it again. Uh, some big decisions being made here, or I mean, it looks like a big decision at, you know, for for cinematic purposes. But I, Chris, I think you know otherwise on on how Gene Cranston Company handled this. Yeah, you know, Gene actually told me uh, they really spiced it up for the movie, but it sounded like that was, uh, you know, when the order came up or when the the request came up to do it, um, they knew it was a last ditch effort, but uh, there really wasn't much in the way of questioning and the movie kind of pauses it out a little bit because they know that they you know of course uh couldn't go to the moon that way but i i think a lot of folks on the ground at least thought that already there was no way they were going to the moon you know but uh that's at least that's how gene sort of explained it to me yeah yeah but it, i mean it, it tells really well <laughs> oh yeah of course the way they're doing it here and uh, ed harris really really sells it as you know we got to do this and um, our, our friend Brett, uh, as the Capcom sells it too, saying, you know, like they all know what they're talking about, but they're all <laughs> like, are you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sure you want to do this? <laughs> Brett, by the way, I, I want to point out wearing another bright colored shirt. Yeah. He Remember really he brought uh, up the bright colored, uh, turtlenecks and uh, there he is again. Yeah. And the other fellow who is, I believe playing John Young is also wearing his uh, astronaut suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The rest of the backup crew, um, right there, just, just fitting, fitting out, out of the, out of the norm of the the white tie and the, and uh, the, the black tie and white shirt, and uh, Hanks here given a great performance. Exp- you know, realizing that he's lost the moon. I mean, he doesn't have to say it. He, he probably didn't have to say it to the crew because they all knew what what it meant to shut off those uh, reactant cells. Uh, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about in all these all these minutes of, of talking about this thing is the fuel cells themselves and how they uh, how they work. They were, I, I mean, fuel cells are pretty, pretty easy concept to understand. If you ever had uh, high school uh, uh, physics and chemistry, where you take a, uh, you take a battery and you put two wires, an anode and a cathode, and you stick them in water, and uh, you run an electric current through it uh, inside of a test tube, the water will separate into hydrogen and oxygen, and that's at the cost of uh, of electricity that you're putting into that reaction. You can reverse that reaction by taking the hydrogen and oxygen and igniting it so that it produces electricity and water as products of combustion. So the electricity that you get out of it, in this case in, a, in Apollo, the, the waste products, the electricity uh, from that combustion they use to power the ship and the water they use for drinking water by the crew. Each one of the fuel cells that they're talking about has their, their, their whole little power plant. There were three of them in the in the, uh, ser- the service module, that's what they were talking about. Shutting down two, shutting down one, you know, turning off the uh, the three uh, power plants that they had there. Each one of those power plants had 31 separate cells, like little batteries of uh, hydrogen and oxygen ignition sources. They were connected in a series, and so they each had a, a hydrogen and oxygen compartment and and electrodes. Uh, and by themselves, each one of them produced like somewhere around 30 31 volts. So the output of those uh, 31 cells is somewhere in the neighborhood of anywhere from uh, 500 to 1400 watts. 
and that's you know i mean that's quite a that's quite a pot and you know they, they had a maximum output of 2300 watts so you could um you could really generate a lot of power there that would you know run for enough time it took to get to the moon and back the problem is is that once you turned off that ignition source once you once you stopped combining the hydrogen and oxygen you stopped making electricity and there was no way in the depth of space you could go in and restart that uh, that reaction so what they're doing here is this is a one-time thing you blow out that match you can't light it up again it's pretty pretty stark stark realization I mean, I'm sure they weren't thinking about it as deep as they were here. They knew what was at stake, but they yeah. also knew their lives were at stake. Well, I think one of the cool things is you uh, you heard a lot of phraseology that you don't maybe understand uh, in this movie, um, especially if you're someone kind of just off the street. However, they they gave it to you in a way that you didn't have to know what it meant. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is one of those where I had no idea what a react valve was um, when I first watched this film, but you, you got an idea, you got a picture in your head, uh, and you certainly walked away with, well, that's it. You can't reverse this, whatever they're about to do, Yeah. you know, and, um, they do a good job of that, I think. Yeah. I think, you know, no, knowing that you're turning off the ignition and you're pretty much breaking the key off in a lock, you're not gonna, you can't re you know, restart the ignition. So, and they think that maybe, I mean, it's a long shot, but they're, they're picturing that it's burning too much fuel. So if they can shut that off, maybe it'll stop for, you know, the other ones. And, uh, you know, we're, as we as we get down to the final second of this thing, we find out that's not the case. And the little the little gauge is going down. You know, you think about it, that's the drinking water for the ship. It, it, a lot of people think that, oh, it's the uh, you know, it's the oxygen that's that's going to be power, you know, it, that's going to be providing you know, breathable oxygen. Well, you don't really use, I mean, people think that, you know, if you don't have an oxygen tank pumping oxygen into the place 24 seven, you're going to die. You don't really use that much oxygen at once. I mean, it, it, we breathe, you know, in your room full of air, you're only using about 5% of your lung capacity. When you inhale, you're only using about 5% of that oxygen that you're taking in. And you really don't use there. There's a surprisingly little amount that you're using on the way from the Earth to the Moon, and so and you can, you can scrub it. I mean, there's this stuff called uh, zeolite that uh, takes, and we're going to talk about that later. Um, the, it, zeolite is a type of uh, it, with activated charcoal. Uh, it it sucks carbon uh, out of the carbon dioxide out of the air and converts it into oxygen. Uh, so you can you know if you remove enough uh, carbon dioxide you can keep rebreathing the oxygen that you've got just as long as you're pulling the pulling the carbon atoms off of off of that o2 but uh you know the big thing here is the power if there's no power you can't you can't keep your ship running you can't fire you know the, the control system doesn't work and uh without control you're gonna you're gonna hit the moon or you're just gonna you know be floating around aimlessly so that was the you know that was the need to keep the service module alive it was i mean it would be good to have all that oxygen but they they really weren't hurting as bad for oxygen as they were for hurting power to keep the ship pointed the right way and keep the gyroscope spinning well and correct me if i'm wrong but yeah a lot of the oxygen uh when they're talking about that in the movie it's actually the oxygen that powers the systems it's not uh it, it, it was not the breathing oxygen it was uh some of the stuff that powers the spacecraft Right um, is is kind of how it was explained to me. Um, yeah, that that that's really it. I mean, the breathing yeah. oxygen they had, you know, they had 
they had the the, uh, the plist packs. If you wanted to climb into a suit, you could breathe that. They weren't they weren't as concerned with running out of breathable air. Breathable air is a surprisingly easy to overcome problem in space. But the biggest problem is that they relied on you know the, the, there's so much there's so much can, to be consumed with oxygen and hydrogen to to use fuel cells, and I mean that that continues today. There's a you know, you know my background with uh, electric vehicles and the constant, <laughs> constant discussion about about batteries and things like that. One of the one of the constant uh, uh, pushes that you hear about is, well, what about hydrogen? Why can't we make you know hydrogen fuel cells and stuff? The biggest problem with hydrogen as a fuel source is that it has very little power um, stored in it. Hydrogen is a very light. I mean, it's the lightest uh, molecule. And it's really hard to store a lot of electric power in a, hyd- a hydrogen molecule. You know, to to do to use, uh, you need a lot of hydrogen and a lot of oxygen to create power. Now, you know, back in the uh, back in the days of designing uh, Apollo Saturn, it, everything was big, so it didn't really matter how big you had tanks of tanks of oxygen and tanks of uh, liquid hydrogen, and you just you know you, you carried these jugs into space and made electricity with them, and that was cool. That was you know that was that was high tech. But nowadays, after a disaster like Apollo 13 and having to rely on these consumables to make power, uh, the move has been away from fuel cells and into things like solar panels. That's why, that's why the International Space Station has that gig- the gigantic array. I mean, it looks like a, a clipper ship if you ever look at it through a telescope. It just it's this big ship full of uh, <laughs> uh, you know solar cells, and that's why uh, ships like uh, the Dragon and uh, the you know the upcoming Orion uh, ship their service modules are being powered by solar cells uh, because you've got a great big source of power right off the port bow called the sun. And you can just, you know, take the power off of there and not have to consume something to make electricity. And, you know, it's a shame they didn't have it at the time because they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had this problem uh, and probably could have landed on the moon if they could, could have had the kind of uh, power uh, that we have on, on our current uh, solar cells. Jim, did you ever think about being a science teacher? <laughs> yeah, but then I'd have to grade papers, and and I I I, I was a substitute teacher for a while, and that kind of cured me. <laughs> if I could be a guest lecturer, I'd love to do that. But right. I think I learned more than our listeners do about the space stuff. I walk away like I did not know that. <laughs> well, it's you know it, it's it's exciting to see how you know all of these things. Even though this is a you know this is a terrible event, people walked away learning things from Apollo thirteen. That's that's probably one of the best scientific gifts that uh, that Apollo 13 gave to us I and mean, you never you know it answered the question can you use a lunar module as a lifeboat the answer yes yes you can should you should you bring a lifeboat with you yes yes you should so you know all of these things that that we learned from back then we we used in you know in in rescuing Skylab in building a uh, an androgynous docking system for the Apollo Soyuz mission, and then using that androgynous docking system uh, later to connect with Mir, uh, as our friend Charlie Precourt did, and, uh, and and you know nowadays on the uh, on the ISS, uh, uh, building an androgynous module is the the key parts that hold the main the main sections of the International Space Station together. So all these things building on past mistakes and past successes is how you know how we do space. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's true, and it was interesting to see. You know, for me, Apollo was is I, I'm I'm biased because I I love the Apollo program, but you know, it was very curious to see how easy Frank and Charlie, when they were together, 
still just communicated about like, oh yeah, you guys laid the foundation for this, and here's kind of where we picked up the torch and went forward with it. You know, it was kind of interesting to see those guys gel at the at the dinner here a couple weeks ago. Yeah, the the thing that kept crossing my mind when we were seeing uh, Charlie Precart and uh, Frank Borman talk to each other was that it suddenly makes extreme sense why they have an astronaut at the Capcom position because they speak each other's language and they know, you know, they have a con they, they can use a shorthand and talk to each other about stuff. And, um, and the camaraderie of having that shared experience of this is what it's like on the other side of the sky. Just, uh, just an amazing, uh, it was amazing. I mean, we, we keep going back to that, to, to that dinner and that day of, of, of talking with Frank and, and with Charlie, but it, it, it was just such, such an astounding astounding moment and knowing these people are still with us is it's a great time to be alive i mean a great time to to absorb history while it's still you know while the people that made history are still with us absolutely it's definitely important to to get those first-hand stories while they're here yeah Uh, because it doesn't get any better than getting the first-hand story i mean you can read a lot of books and, and different things but when you actually have the person you know to to tell you firsthand about it man it is it's gold. I mean, it is gold for storytelling. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have some people coming up who who were firsthand or you know in an, in a similar situations to these things coming up in a, in the next couple of weeks. So stay stay tuned. Um, but this is you know fascinating minute, a very sad minute, I think, um, because you you know even though I mean you've seen this movie, I've seen it hundreds of times, and I'm sure you have, Chris. Uh, but you know, when you every time you watch this movie and you know how it's going to turn out, you still kind of lean into it and hope this time. It's like hoping the Titanic doesn't sink. You know, maybe well, maybe they're going to miss the iceberg. <laughs> so it's just a, a bit frustrating, but uh, you know, it's it's sad, and it is that this is definitely we're we're in Act Two of <laughs> of of the story. Um, but let's uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about more of this uh, tomorrow. Uh, for folks who haven't missed any of our previous scintillating episodes, please check us out online at the Apollo 13 Minute, uh, Apollo13Minute.com. Uh, you can find us on, of course, all the usual uh, podcasting channels, iTunes or uh, Google Play. Just uh, search for Apollo 13 Minute and click subscribe, and you'll get us hot and fresh every morning, uh, Monday through Friday. And if you'd like to reach out to us, we are always available on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. You can find us on Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minutes Mission Control. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow and talking more about uh, falling gauges and and sad astronauts. Uh, Looks like we're coming up on loss of signal in about 30 seconds. So we will catch you here next time on the Apollo 13 Minute.